Well, good morning. Have you ever looked at your life and the circumstances going on in your life and just said, this makes absolutely no sense? And just said, you know, God, what are you up to? This can't possibly be your will for me. This is weird. Well, if you've ever said that about your life, then what we're going to look at in the book of Acts today in Paul's life may resonate with you. Uh, We are in this series where we're looking at the book of Acts and how the gospel, the good news of Jesus, spread virally throughout the known world. Uh, And uh, we left off last week, Darren finished with Acts chapter 17. I'm supposed to pick up with Acts 25. There's a lot that happened in those eight chapters in between. And you wouldn't understand, I didn't understand what was going on in 25 without those chapters in between. So I'm going to fill in some of the backstory. And we're going to talk about what's going on in Paul's life that made no sense. You ready? I'm convinced. Okay, so Paul has been traveling through countries we would look at the map and know today as Greece and Turkey and Syria. And he's been working with churches that are already established and strengthening and building them up. He's also been establishing some new churches converting people to Christianity, working with them, building these churches up. While he's doing that work with churches, he's also raising some funds to help the church in Jerusalem because a famine has broken out in that region and people are starving. So he's doing kind of this dual thing while he's traveling through that area. And he's intent on taking the money personally back to Jerusalem and distributing it to help the poor and starving people in Jerusalem. It hasn't been an easy decision for Paul, though. He's wrestled with it to get to that point. And in fact, in Acts chapter 20, he tells a group of close friends, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. He gave his entire life from the point of conversion until the day he died to that one single task of sharing God's grace with everyone he met. Now, in fact, when he got to Jerusalem, what the Holy Spirit had warned him about was exactly what happened. Simplest way to put it is the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem were torqued. They were upset. It seems that thousands of Jews had converted to Christianity because of Paul's influence. And so these leaders were upset and they had whipped the entire city of Jerusalem into a frenzy because they'd caught wind that Paul was coming to Jerusalem. So Paul arrives in Jerusalem. He goes to the temple to worship, and a riot breaks out. Paul is dragged out of the temple and beaten. The people are intent on killing him. Can I just say that's a bad day at church? You know, and as if to absolve themselves of the guilt, the religious leaders see what's happened... And they see that it's taken outside of the church now. And so they just shut the gates to the temple and lock them. 
It's like our hands are clean. We'll let the common people do our dirty work and we'll just stay inside. And they would have killed Paul, except for the fact that the Roman soldiers caught wind that there was a riot in the city and they came in and broke it up and arrested Paul. They arrested Paul, who was being beaten. And now, this is when I begin to question what God's up to. Do the math. Benevolence work plus church attendance for worship equals a beating and an arrest. What did I miss in the equation? You know? What is God up to? And as if to add insult to injury, when Paul finally comes to, catches his breath, he asks the soldiers, why was I arrested? And the soldiers look at him and go, well, aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Great. (laughs) He's now been confused with an Egyptian terrorist. His day just went from bad to worse. Paul then gets a chance to speak and defend himself in front of this angry mob. They still want to kill him. Later he gets a chance to defend himself in front of the religious leaders. They still want to kill him. So because he's a Roman citizen, they now transfer Paul to a Roman holding cell and uh, court in Caesarea, 60 miles away. They have to do it quickly because the Jewish leaders catch wind that he's going to be transferred and they plot to assassinate him on the trip. This isn't getting any better for Paul. So he goes to Caesarea and he stands trial before a corrupt Roman governor named Felix who really doesn't have a clue what the conflict is about and doesn't know what to do with Paul. So he does the only thing he knows to do with him and he puts him back in prison. And he leaves him there for two years. Two years. And he quite regularly, Felix pulls Paul out of the prison for conversation. Not because he really cares about Paul's case, not because he's particularly interested in Christianity, just simply because he's hoping Paul will give him a bribe and then he'll let him go. Paul didn't have anything to bribe him with and wouldn't if he could. So he stays in prison for two years. Now understand, Paul hasn't committed any crime. And yet he's a prisoner of the Roman Empire solely on the basis of false claims of enraged Jewish leaders. He was the one who went to worship and was dragged out of the temple and beaten by a crowd. And yet he's the one in prison. If I'm Paul at this point, I'd be really confused. Since becoming a Christian, Paul has given his entire life to teaching people about Jesus. God's used him in amazing ways. All throughout the book of Acts, we read about Paul converting thieves and murderers, members of government, religious leaders. Thousands of people have come to Christ because of Paul's influence. And now he's sitting in a prison cell for two years. There have to have been days when Paul stared at the prison wall and said, why? Why? How can this be God's will? Is this the best use of my talents and abilities to sit here like this? Ever had days like that? Circumstances in your life where you go, is this really God's best for me? What's God up to? I am convinced from reading the Bible, and when we do that, we get to look back in history and see the end of the story. 
I'm convinced from circumstances in my life and from living with you, many of you, and the circumstances in your life, that what's true is that God often uses circumstances in our lives that we would never choose. He uses them. Paul wouldn't have chosen a lot of the things that happened in the course of his life. But God used them, the worst of circumstances, to spread the message of Jesus. At one point, Paul was writing to the church in Corinth, and he listed out some of the things that had happened in his life. Listen to his description. He said, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. And he's not talking like gravel from your driveway stones. These are like big stones meant to kill you. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my fellow Jews, from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, at sea, from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Or if you're from the South, naked. At some point... I wonder, that's really not a great recruitment poster for missionaries, you know? I read that and I go, if I'm Paul, I probably would have been tempted to quit midpoint or sooner. I would have lost the plot line on what God was doing with me. Or at least have asked God for a time out to re-examine this whole thing. Those aren't the circumstances I would have chosen for my life. Certainly not what Paul would have chosen. And I doubt I would have had the strength to hang in there like he did. And yet God used every one of those circumstances in Paul's life to advance the gospel of grace. And it was about to happen to Paul again. Paul was about to discover again that God uses circumstances we would not choose to take us places We would not go. By Acts 25, Felix, the corrupt governor who put Paul in prison, was gone. A new governor had been brought in to clean things up, and it quickly became apparent to Festus, this new governor, that he didn't know how to handle this whole situation between the Jewish leaders and Paul. Paul was clearly innocent, and being a Roman citizen, he had a right to a trial or to be released. But if Festus released Paul, it would infuriate the religious leaders among the Jews and could incite political unrest in the region. If that happened and that got back to Caesar in Rome, Festus would not only lose his job, but he'd probably lose his life. That's just kind of the way the emperors rolled. And that's the point at which King Agrippa and Bernice came to town. And that, we read that, and that doesn't seem like a pivotal point in the story to us. I'm not that familiar with history that I'd go, oh my gosh, look at that. But historically, this is huge. Herod Agrippa II was considered by Rome to be an authority on Jewish religion. Recognize the name Herod? His great-grandfather was King Herod the one who was king when Jesus was born. The one who got a little scared when the wise men came to visit. 
said, come back when you find him and let me know. And when they didn't come back, had all the babies in and around Bethlehem who were two years and under killed. That's his lineage. Herod Agrippa II was appointed by Rome because his family had been steeped in Jewish tradition, had been around that region for a long time. He understood the Jewish leaders. He was appointed by Rome to be a curator of the temple in Jerusalem. That meant he had the authority to appoint and remove the high priest, the one who controlled Jewish politics and Jewish religion. He also controlled the temple treasury, all the funds in there. He had authority over and understood the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And since the case against Paul was largely a religious one, that meant Festus could now get expert advice on how to write up the charges against Paul and ship him off to Rome as Paul had requested to be tried before the emperor. So Festus convened a hearing. But it wasn't just any hearing. In Acts 25... Luke writes, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with high-ranking military officers and prominent men of the city. And uh, And at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. This was no simple hearing. Everyone would have been dressed in their finest royal garments and military official robes. It would have been this great procession where rigid protocol would have been followed. Entrances would have been made in the proper sequence and with the right timing between each one. This was a big deal. Think of all the pomp and circumstance that went around the royal wedding a couple of years ago. And if you think of that, you're beginning to get the idea of what this would have been like for this hearing for Paul. And in the middle of this display, after everyone was seated, they would have brought in little old Paul, the Jewish prisoner, who would appear small and insignificant with manacles and humble clothes. The entire scene was concocted to make the prisoner feel insignificant and intimidated. God uses circumstances we wouldn't choose to take us places we would never go to introduce us to people we wouldn't otherwise meet. There was no other way Paul would have gotten a chance to be in front of and to meet those people who were assembled in that room and speak to them about Jesus. It took the circumstances God had been lining up for two years to get him in front of that audience, filled with all the religious and political and business leaders, not from not one, but two geographic regions, the one overseen by Festus and the ones overseen by Herod Agrippa. And not just the ones from the Jewish community, but the ones from the Gentile community as well. Only God could have brought this about. And I am convinced that as Paul heard what was going to happen, it was clear to him now why he had been in prison for two years. It was for this very moment. Paul had been trained as a speaker and a theologian under the greatest teacher of his day, Gamaliel. And he put his training to good use. And he chose not to make a personal defense. Not to plead for his freedom. Not to plead for his life. Instead, he told the story of Jesus. And he made an appeal for everyone there to accept God's grace. As I thought about these principles this week. 
and how they apply to my own life, I had to be really honest. The biggest thing that stood out to me is the fact that, honestly, I never wanted to live in Chicago. Just being real. 17 years ago, when Kai and I were looking for our next church to serve, north and a big city were two characteristics that were not in the prayers that Connie and I were offering. We didn't like big cities, and we didn't like cold weather. And very few people we lived around in southwestern Ohio thought Chicago was a great place to live. Great place to visit, not a great place to live. In fact, our small group threw us a going-away party, and on the going-away cake, you know when they put something nice on the top of the cake as you're leaving, if they like you, um, They put this verse from Acts on the cake. Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. (laughs) I kind of deserved the small group I had. But over the last 17 years, God's shown us over and over again why he wanted us here. And I wouldn't have missed this for the world. But let me give you just one example of why I think God brought us here. And I share this with you guardedly for a couple of reasons. One, I'm not a name dropper. I don't like to do that. Secondly, I'm not a big fan of famous people. I've never tried to be around famous people. I don't really admire famous people. I'm not an autograph seeker. I don't want to be around famous people. I've never sought them out. But in the work I did at the nonprofit before I came to Westridge, Sometimes I was around them, and one relationship there serves an example of what we're talking about this morning, so I'm going to share it, okay? So it's guardedly that I share this. Um, through a series of really convoluted circumstances that I won't go into, but that's part of why this fits, I agreed to host a guy from California during one of the events that we had, a guy I'd never met before, I didn't recognize his name. He was coming to check out the conference and maybe be a part of it in the future, so I said, sure, I'll host him, which meant hanging around with him, being with him for eight to ten hours, solid, never leave his side. And once I looked up who he was and found out who he was, I was looking forward to the day with not a little dread. Turns out the guy I was hosting was named Randall Wallace. Does that name mean anything to anybody? couple of you nodding your heads. Uh, turns out Randall has written and or directed several very famous movies in Hollywood. Among those movies are Man in the Iron Mask, Pearl Harbor, Secretariat, and then his most famous movie, Braveheart. Okay? Most of the famous people that I've been around in my life are very impressed with themselves. And when they meet you, they want you to be impressed with them too. And if you're not, they invest a huge amount of energy in making sure that you are impressed with them, okay? I just really get tired of that really quickly. So when I find out somebody's famous, I don't want to spend time with them. I'd rather you just shoot me now, okay? Just get me out of my misery. But as it turns out, Randall was nothing like that. Uh, First thing that I liked about him was that he drove himself from O'Hare Airport to this event in a subcompact car. But okay, I'll cut him some slack. Uh, And as he walked in and we got to know each other a little bit, it turns out he was a southern boy from the hills of North Carolina 
who was a storyteller at heart. That's how he got into the industry. Uh, he made sure I understood that he loved his mama deeply. Uh, I found out he has a divinity, degree from Duke, a divinity degree from Duke University. And we just started talking and hit it off. So once I got over my objections to spending the day with him, I began to wonder why in the world am I hosting one of Hollywood's elite at our little event for the day? Why did God cross our paths? And about halfway through the day, I found out why. Randall began to talk about his faith journey while we were together. And it turns out he was searching for a church home in California. One where he could be real. One where he could just be Randall, a guy. Somebody who has two sons he's trying to raise to love God. And somebody who just is struggling with his own faith journey and what that means. And he said, you know, as hard as it is to imagine, the culture in Hollywood and Los Angeles is a little weird. Actually, I said that's not hard to imagine. Um, But he told me that, you know, one church he tried and he went for a while, he said it was actually the culture was so weird that he was walking his son forward for his first communion and a guy actually stepped out into the aisle and pitched a movie script to him right in the middle of church. And I went, really? That's something I've never experienced. Um, I don't think it was a coincidence that a few weeks before I had been in California visiting a friend in L.A. a few miles from Randall's home that was full of people who worked in the industry who had built a culture, had been searching for and had built a culture where they could be real. Everybody worked in the industry. Nobody wanted that kind of a culture. They just wanted to be real people. They just wanted to develop a relationship with God. And honestly, he would be among peers who would just go, yeah, big deal. So you got a movie? Join the crowd. I realized pretty quickly that the day that I was spending with him wasn't about our event. It wasn't about me, and it wasn't about his fame. It was all about the fact that he needed to find a church home where he could develop his relationship with God. Though I wouldn't have put these words to it, looking back, I can see that what God was teaching me was that God uses circumstances we wouldn't choose to put us in places we wouldn't go to introduce us to people we wouldn't otherwise meet. To what end? To reach one more person with the message of grace. I think God does all of this, rearranges stuff in our lives to help us make a connection with people. Sometimes a few people, sometimes one person. So that we can have a chance to share his story of love and grace. And I wonder if sometimes in my life, maybe in yours too, that I miss those connections, I miss those moments, because I'm so busy whining about being inconvenienced that my plans have been changed, that I just blow past it. Why is my flight delayed? Why am I stuck in this line? Why am I sitting alone waiting for this appointment? Why am I meeting this person? It seems like a waste of time. And as I was talking through this in first service, God said, yeah, and why did you complain about going to physical therapy in North Aurora, 40 minutes away? 
when in fact over the last two months as I've been going there, I've had spiritual conversations with three of the therapists. Maybe. Think possibly God wanted me there. I agree that at some times it may simply be that we're in one of those pointless, frustrating moments in life where there isn't a point to it. But could we just explore for a moment that sometimes God might be moving around the pieces of our lives and orchestrating a chance for us to share His grace with someone? And maybe, maybe we've missed it or we run the risk of missing it because our heart is angry instead of open to the whispers of God. What would have happened that day if Paul had been angry, frustrated because he'd been stuck in prison for two years instead of open to the opportunity God put in front of him? He could have missed it. He could have stood up that day in front of all those people and loudly proclaimed his innocence, presented a world-class case for why he should be freed, why he should have never been arrested in the first place. That would have been okay. He would have been right in that. And at the same time, he would have missed a great experience and opportunity that God had orchestrated over two years for him. A once in a lifetime experience. I've had to learn, and I'm still learning in my life, that God is in control of the spread of his message. I'm not. And that means he can reorder the circumstances of my life and send me anywhere he chooses. That's part of what it means when we surrender our life to him. We invite him. We invite Jesus to lead us and guide us in our lives. We ask to be used for his plans and his purposes. And that may mean, by our perception at times, that we're inconvenienced by our judgment, by our standards. But it may mean, by God's standards, that he's laying an opportunity in front of us if we'll just open our eyes and open our hearts to see it. And I'm still learning that I'm not in control of who accepts or rejects God's gospel of grace. Paul was the right man to speak to those people that day, and he took that opportunity. Their reaction? Festus thought that Paul was just crazy. That's just crazy talk. Agrippa found the message mildly amusing. He just laughed at Paul and said, Really? You think you can persuade me to be a Christian so quickly? Behind the scenes, he was just pushing Jesus away in order to pacify the Jews. We don't know about anybody else in the room. What we do know is that Paul did everything he could and all that God asked of him that day, and that's all we're responsible for. I'm convinced that the reason that God used Paul in the way that he did was not because of his extraordinary talents, but because of his servant's heart. That's what it took for Paul to put up with the unbelievable circumstances in his life. He adopted an attitude of a servant's heart. God is in control. 
And this morning, I want to challenge us to turn Paul's attitude into a prayer in our lives. If we could pray this prayer, I honestly believe we'd be amazed at what God does with us, at the way he takes the circumstances in our life, rearranges them, maybe not every day, but the way he rearranges them, takes us into new places, introduces us to new people, and opens up doors for us to share his grace, just to tell what God's done in our lives. So if you have the courage, let's start praying this prayer. Lord, help us. Help us to become about every sort of servant there is in our attempts to lead those we meet into a God-saved life. And let's see what God does with those humble prayers.